join me again this morning in Colossians chapter 4. Text this morning is verses 2 through 6. And Paul has argued throughout this book, particularly from the middle of chapter 2 and following, that the body of Christ, that is, we who are incorporated into Christ, we have the likeness and the practice of Christ imprinted on everything that we do. And he's moved in consideration and expansion of that idea from even the thoughts that go on in our own minds, the individual, that Christ's likeness and practice are implanted in us, then to the family of faith. They're implanted in the way that we treat one another, we speak to one another, we think about one another, we forgive one another. Then last week, he expanded toward the household consideration that the likeness and practice of Christ should be evident between husbands and wives, parent and children, masters and slaves. This morning, we have the final extension of that idea, and he moves outside of the church altogether. He moves outside of our practice toward each other, what we do in our homes, to the outside world. He comes full circle. So, no No interaction is untouched by our life in Christ. Everything that we do, as he said earlier, whatever we do in word or deed, in ourselves, towards each other, in our homes, and toward those who are outside, we must do in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he sets his attention sort of outside the bounds of the body of Christ. Keep in mind, this is the last portion of the body of the letter. Last week will be our final week looking at an extended uh, farewell in verses 7 through 18. This is the last point that he makes in the body of Colossians. And it's one theme, really. It's how we should live life in light of the end. How Christ's impact on our life carries us through to the end of our lives how we should think in a complete circle about, again, every interaction. So we have a Christ-centered disposition of every moment from now until the end, from now until we see Him. Everything revolves around our interaction with Him, as he made that argument in chapter 2. So the two uh, ideas that are present in the text this morning, verses 2 through 6, are prayer and proclamation or prayer and evangelism. And I think you'll, we'll see that the second really carries the weight um, of, the, of his argument today, that our mission as a church family is not just what we do here today as we gather to be equipped, but our mission extends when we scatter, where we, what we go and do in our interaction with the outside world. So it really is a call toward a holistic approach to how we consider the impact of Christ on our lives. The proposition this morning would be that we are called to join the Apostle Paul in this eschatological mission of clearly proclaiming the mystery of Christ. So really, we're called to join the Apostle in clearly proclaiming the mystery of Christ. New life in Christ compels us to pray for, to pray for, and to practice evangelism. Let's go 
to God in prayer. Father, we know that these are your words, not our own. We have not imagined them. We have not made them up. They have not come from our own mouths. This is from the very mouth of God through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And so we acknowledge your right, your supremacy in saying whatever you desire to say. And here this morning it is that you have called us toward prayer and toward evangelism. Christ compels us to do that. We are obligated to the divine. And so we pray that as we look into your word, the text would be very plain and clear. It would not appear complex or convoluted, but that it would be laid out before us with simplicity, with beauty, that the call would be clear, that we would know how we ought to respond. We thank you and trust that you will accomplish this because it is your stated desire to illuminate your word by your spirit, to grow us in the word, and to lead us into truth. And so we pray that you will accomplish that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the section is divided into two pieces, uh, once again by imperatives. Uh, that is, continue earnestly in prayer is our first imperative, and then to walk in wisdom. So these two ideas um, structure the whole, but I think as we walk through again, you'll see that even the first one, continuing earnestly in prayer, is very quickly and clearly flavored by our prayer toward our mission, our prayer toward open doors for the gospel. So we'll just read through this one more time since we read it in um, a large portion, and then we'll look at continuing earnestly in prayer being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Whenever we consider the topic of prayer, it's a bit intimidating. It feels a bit exposing because there are probably very few of us that practice prayers we ought to. And so when we consider this morning, I, I pray that this is an encouragement towards something rather than a discouragement of our practice of it. So there's three qualities of prayer that we ought to have. First of them is that we're persistent. That is continuing earnestly in it. So our practice of interaction with God in response to His Word and in response to life is intended to be continual, that it is consistent and faithful, that we persevere in it, that we will return to it time and time and time again, always responding, always reacting, always going back to a consideration of conversation with God whether it's something difficult in our lives that prompts it, or whether it's reading a text of Scripture, whether it's a conversation with a friend, whatever it might be, whether it's even the little uh, things that annoy us, whatever it might be, our whole lives are intended, as He calls us, to be disposed toward a habit of prayer. He paints the, the picture in this phrase that one is totally devoted to the habit. There's all different sorts of 
types of prayers that are described in the Bible. And this total habit, I think, would be the pray without ceasing, right? And everything that we do, things going on even in the back of our minds that we're just sort of running a constant conversation with God, responding to the things of life. Then there's other times that we might set aside portions of time, quiet time devoted to prayer, where we may perhaps focus a little bit more, rather than just responding as we walk through life and conversing with God, that, that there are also perhaps set-aside times of serious conversation. If you're a leader in the family, then that would be a good opportunity to practice familial prayer, right? That you practice the habit, perhaps before a meal, perhaps before bed, wherever it might be, that we have this habit lifestyle of prayer. And then perhaps most importantly, and is often missed in our evangelical world is corporate prayer, that we must be a family who prays together. We seek to emphasize that together here at Grace with our prayer service. It's why we have it on Sunday morning in order to encourage everyone to stay and to practice this continual, earnest, persistent prayer. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus spoke a parable to his disciples. He said that men always ought to pray and to not lose heart. And he gives this example of a woman who was seeking justice from a judge, and she continued being persistent and pestering and bothering and asking for justice. And even an ungodly judge gave her justice because she was persistent. How much more than our good, loving Father who cares for us and will give us good gifts, wants to hear from us, and wants to interact with us. So he says, continue earnestly. This is uh, reminiscent of chapter 1, verse 9, when Paul says, For this reason, since the day we heard, we have not ceased praying for you. So he's not calling the Colossians to something he doesn't personally practice. He's calling them to something that he's lived out before them. So he's modeled it. We follow him. Keep in mind that particularly with the Apostle Paul, but prayer in general is not just this desire of a wish list, right? Presenting all the things that we want to God. It's far deeper than that. This is the way that we, one of the ways that we participate in the plan of redemption. This is one of the ways that we participate in the God who is currently redeeming and moving people toward new earth and toward eternal life. So while it may be easy to be discouraged in prayer, perseverance, and wholehearted devotion to this habit are forward-looking ideas. It is today. It is tomorrow. It is as we move forward. Let us commit ourselves to this practice. It's not discouraged by what has been, discouraged by past failures. A persistent person isn't really focused on that, are they? They're focused on going again, once more, going before the throne of grace, once more practicing in our responses the habit of prayer. So it's not only persistent, but it is also vigilant. He says, being vigilant in it. And the idea here is alertness. You'll remember this from the epistles of Peter. He emphasized this quite strongly, that alertness and having your eyes open is one of the most important things for a New Testament Christian. For someone living in these last days, we have to be aware. And in Mark 14, 38, this is in the garden, Jesus came and found his disciples sleeping, didn't he? And he said to Peter, Simon, why are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus went away again, and he prayed. And he said the same thing he had said before, and when he returned, he found them asleep again, because their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping, and you're still resting? It is enough Enough of this. The, t the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We see in that example a lack of awareness, don't we? A lack of their eyes even quite literally being opened. And it manifested itself in this unprepared response to trial. That then the betrayer arrived with swords and with torches, and they came to take Jesus. And how did the disciples respond? Quite poorly, didn't they? They were not alert. They were not prepared. Peter takes off his sword, out his sword, cuts off the ear of one of the servants. They all scatter. Peter then denies Jesus three times. You can't help but wonder, what if they had stayed awake and prayed? What if they had been alert and ready and in conversation with their father, would the response have been the same? I don't know, but it's certainly something worth considering that this lack of spiritual awareness often, respond, often responds poorly to trial. So preparation then and awareness are very important in a spiritual warfare. Uh, Paul described, he uses the same word alert uh, in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's calling us to put on the armor of God and to be ready to fight. He calls us to be alert. So how often are we, how often are we caught off guard? Maybe just because of our demand for, for slothful ease rather than spiritual diligence. So let us have our eyes open and aware in prayer. Um, let us not be Christians who sort of blunder through life with our eyes closed. And inasmuch as I think Paul is calling us to pray, perhaps with our eyes open, this also reveals that the person who prays is going to be a spiritually alert person. It reflects alertness, which is so interesting, isn't it, as we think about the habit of prayer, because it's often quite dozy. <laughs> It's often we're moving, well, we start with our eyes closed, and sometimes we end with everything shut off. And while in reality, it's sort of moving towards the opposite. It's moving towards an awareness. Thirdly, the third characteristic is we're, we're persistent, we're alert, we're vigilant, and then we are also thankful. We saw that theme particularly unfold in its threefold use in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, that thanksgiving was a particular uh, particularly right and correct, a proper habit and response even of our interaction with each other because of what Christ has done for us. Prayer and thanksgiving most certainly are supposed to be associated. We see that all through Scripture, all through the Psalms, all through Paul. It's gratitude. And I think it's, it's both, it looks both directions, doesn't it? We often think of thanksgiving as reflecting back on what God has done. That's right and proper. That's a good way to think about it. We would look back even in the book of Colossians and we would say, wow, he's, he's forgiven us. We have this, we've had this gospel experience by which we've experienced fruit in our life. The Father has qualified us to share in the, in the inheritance of the saints in light and he's delivered us 
from the power of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love and uh, he's reconciled us. We're now at peace with God. He's conquered our old evil masters. The powers are humiliated before him. We have this new incorporation into Christ. We have all of these things. We can look back and be extraordinarily thankful that that would impact and affect every moment of our prayer, most certainly. But it's also true in Colossians that we would have this forward look that we can be thankful for things that are yet to be because we are assured that they are. Right? He has this very realized eschatology that we are presently at the right hand. We have received our inheritance. We are alive with Christ in God. And so he reflects upon that and he says, live with thanksgiving because of, because of what is in the past and in the future. So thanksgiving in that case, it's important to know, too, that it, it may not always show up um, in a way that we traditionally think of Thanksgiving, with smiles and clapping and rejoicing, right? Many times we could be thankful there, but if we're supposed to be thankful in all things, in prayer at all times, well, we're not always smiling and clapping, are we? Life is difficult. There are many moments of life that are, that are quite dark. Thanksgiving may very well be the desperate cry of someone clinging to the promise of God on a dark night. That could be Thanksgiving too, because you're returning to the promise, and you're remembering the promise, and you're believing the promise, and being grateful for what He's done. So the point remains, whether we're smiling or whether we're weeping, we can be thankful, earnest, and active alert in our prayers. So this idea, this persistent, alert, thankful prayers, these kinds of people are people who are um, in tune, aware of the will of God, what God is doing, what He's accomplishing in redemption. That is our focus as well. We adopt the Christological mind, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And we also are able to see the need that the world has of the gospel. Remember where we once were, in this gospel predicament, in, the, in our need, and we know that the people around us are in the same situation. So the new humanity, that's us. We're called to pray with consistency, awareness, and gratitude. While we're praying, verse 3, meanwhile, as we practice this sort of habit and lifestyle of prayer, Paul says, pray for us too. Would you remember us as you go before God? Remember in verse, chapter 1, verse 9, I remember you constantly, and he's asking a favor, a boon in return. Please remember me too. And there are two particular requests that he asks for the Colossians to pray for him. He says, pray for us, number one, that God would open to us a door for the word. So here we see the fullest theme of the text, really what the point this morning is all about is that the continued advance of the gospel in the world is on the minds and on the hearts of God's people. This is one of the truest demonstrations of the community of faith that is alert and that is persevering in prayer, is that we pray with a heart toward the lost. And so we look towards perhaps our neighbors and our missionaries and our fellow believers, and we say, I want to pray for you that God would open to you a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which Paul was in chains. So, open doors. It's interesting. Paul speaks this way a number of times here in Colossians and then in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, 16, verse 8 and 9, he says, I'll tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost because 
a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2.12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. So notice who's opening the door. Well, the one to whom we're praying that he would open the door. God is opening the door for opportunity. Paul speaks this way often, and it's, a, it's an impactful figure of speech, and one I think that, that would quite commonly resonate with us. It's even one that we use. So in what way would this resonate? Well, haven't you experienced this? Haven't you experienced closed doors to the Word? And perhaps also at other and maybe more unique times, open doors to the Word? There's nothing more magnificent, beautiful, encouraging in the Christian life than watching God open a door to the Word. We have the joy, if we have the courage, to walk through it. And there goes the mystery of Christ advancing through this perhaps door to a soul. But know that it is God that does that. I think even just last night I was studying at a coffee shop downtown and... um, had a, there was nobody there. Nobody's there. It was just me, and so there was the barista there, and so we struck up a conversation. And we we're having a wonderful gospel, gospel moving, gospel advancing conversation. We were getting there. And a wonderful time, like I just sort of heard her life story, all of this stuff. And then right as we got to the point where I was like, and this is the beauty of the gospel of Christ in contrast to something else, customers walk in the door. They have need, everything's interrupted. Everything's broken up. Haven't you felt that? That like frustration where you're like, oh, it was right. It was right there. Now, is that my fault? Is that her fault? Is that anybody's fault? No, not necessarily. In fact, we ended by saying, well, I'll come back another time. We'll have another conversation. The door was a little bit open and then it was shut. And so not only does it resonate with us like we've experienced that, like that's not a random thing, that's a divine thing. And he's saying here that prayer makes an impact on whether that door or those doors open or close. So let us not, brothers and sisters, as people who hold very dear to our hearts the sovereign hand of God and exactly that he will do the right thing and all the right moments, let us not trust that to the exclusion of praying for him to open them. That makes sense? Let us pray actively things like this because the door is naturally closed and God desires us not to neglect this desired discipline of prayer which does move His providential hand. Not only does it resonate with us like it makes sense, it also is encouraging to us because not every moment is the right moment. That's important for us to sort of meditate on and reflect upon. Not every word is the right word. Not every conversation is the right conversation. This comes up a little bit later in the text, but take heart that facing closed doors is not the fruit of your evangelistic inabilities or missteps. That is the natural disposition of the heart of man, that there, is, there are closed doors everywhere. Every door is a closed door, lest God opens that door. And so just take heart, be encouraged by that. He's also not just describing an opportunity, is he? He's also describing an event, which metaphorically it is the mystery of Christ that walks through that door. So Christ is moving when the gospel moves. When the gospel is spoken, Christ is moving through 
this door. So this mystery, you'll remember this from chapter 1, um, that the mystery revealed is to the Gentiles that Christ is in them as well. It's this global impact of the gospel, and we found it discovered, manifested, unveiled from all of these Old Testament promises and anticipations that were clear but not clear because we hadn't seen Christ yet. But now that we've seen Christ and we watched Him, now it's very evident how God was going to fulfill many of these Old Testament promises. That is the gospel. It's the good news of who He is and what He's done. And so that is what's on the move. Once again, heavily emphasizing our mission as messengers of the Messiah. So, it's also true here that having walked through those doors is the very reason that Paul is currently chained. That there, used, there was an open door before, and he walked through it, and he got shackles put on his wrist, and he's now in Rome. Uh, even when he, in 1 Corinthians 16, you remember that there's a great and effective door opens for me and many adversaries. It's not as though that may now the door is open, it's just, you know, rainbows and butterflies, but that now the door is open, the heart is cultivated, the soil of one's heart may be cultivated to receive the word. That doesn't mean battles are over, fights are not fought, there aren't adversaries that and I don't mean to be mystical about it, but that Satan could not in his warfare send a customer through the door to disrupt a gospel conversation, right? There may be impact, there may be effect, even negatively, as a result of speaking the truth. So an open door may come at a personal cost to us, and that's okay. It's okay because suffering for Christ is part and parcel of the Christian walk. It's something anticipated, communicated, warned about, not something uh, where we're intended to... It's the message of Christ that should provoke those sorts of afflictions on our heart, not that we're sitting there just beating on closed doors or yelling through a closed door, right? Peter addresses that a little bit too. Don't be chained up for dumb things. (laughs) Be chained up for Christ. So he asks first that there would be an open door. But once the door is opened, are we done? No, we're not done, are we? So God opens the door, and his second request is what? Then that Paul would make it manifest so that God would open a door and that Paul would walk through it with boldness and with clarity. I think we've also probably all experienced this, where maybe you knew that door was open. It was like, I'm not feeling it today. Like, I, I'm just nervous, uncomfortable. I don't want to. I, I, and perhaps there are many open doors that we walked by. So he's calling us toward a bold declaration of our faith. Again, we're persistent. It's not like a life of regrets. We're moving towards the next open door. Let's look for that. Let's pray for that. Anticipate that. Now, this manifesting is, that's kind of a psychological term today that's maybe cornered the market. And so he's not saying uh, that he's referencing turning something from an idea in my mind into a reality, or he's not saying I'm going I'm to manifest the gospel. Maybe a more clear word for us today would be he's going to reveal it, or he's going to make it clear. He's going to communicate it accurately, just like he called, remember his apostolic mission was that he would consistently preach the revealed mystery of Christ with clarity. That's his goal. 
And so Paul's requesting prayer that in response to God opening the door to the mystery of Christ, Paul would boldly and clearly articulate him, that Paul would indeed take the opportunity to display Jesus in conversation in order that Christ would be clearly seen. So an opportunity given is not equal to an opportunity taken. May we be those who pray for one another to take opportunities that God provides. This is um, fitting for Paul to pray, for Paul to ask prayer, even that he would have courage to speak, because he's obliged to. Right? This is his responsibility. It is his call. He must speak. He's compelled to proclaim Christ. That absolutely is a statement of his apostolic responsibility, which was introduced in chapter 1, verse 25. But it's also most certainly a statement that casts a very wide net and includes every single one of us. He'll make that argument in the last two verses. But we are all compelled to speak of Christ as blood-bought servants, as doulos, as the household servants of Jesus, it is right, it is fitting, we must speak of Christ to the world, which kind of leads us right into verses 5 and 6. So there's the prayer for the apostle, which, is largely, which largely revolves around evangelism, and then there's sort of the, the purposeful witness, the habit of life of the Christians themselves in Colossae. And so he starts, there's maybe four aspects of this purposeful witness. First is that we walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We've seen in Colossians before, and we've talked about it at length, this, this idea of walk is simply the pattern of life. It's the way that someone lives and all their cumulative actions put together. And he's saying that that sort of a life, this accumulation of our lives, must be qualified by wisdom. Now, I'm really looking forward to the, even this next year. After we finish up Genesis, we're planning, I hope, to work through the book of Proverbs as well. And certainly there we would be familiar that wisdom is all throughout this book of Proverbs. It's really the theme. It categorizes the genre itself. So what is this wisdom? What is he saying here? He's saying wisdom is this skill that righteous people would possess in order to do and say the right things at the right time and in the right way, all qualified by how God would have us to live. What would God say do? think in this moment? And how could we live that out? Because after all, it is His world. And so everything is um, qualified by His creation of it. So that's what wisdom in, in, in its heartbeat is. Um, but we've seen in Colossians as well, this New Testament development of wisdom, that the fullest, the, the clearest expression and demonstration of this walk of life is found in Christ, right? That's chapter 2, verse 3. In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as those whose new natures are with him, we examine his life and his character in order to follow it. It is true, is it not, that the reputation of Christ is bound up in the life of Christians? Sometimes it's quite discouraging and distressing especially when someone may not even be a Christian but professes it, whether that's individually or categorically with 
uh, large sectors of faith, people who would say, we are a Christian, we profess Christ, and we speak of Jesus. And my, it, it, is your heart not broken for all of those who sort of grew up in a circle like that and never heard an accurate representation of who Christ is, never saw it, everything that they know about Jesus is the fruit of false witness? That's pretty, that's pretty dark. That's really difficult. And so it's important then that our disposition is truly Christological, that people would see him in us, that we, they would say, and this is old, isn't it? You are different. There is something attractive about the way that you're living. It's not like anything I've seen or heard. And so our practice, that we would walk in wisdom in a skilled righteousness sort of way, toward those who are outside. And then this interesting phrase, redeeming the time. Um, there's really two words, redeeming and time. So redeeming is uh, familiar to us theologically. It's this idea of Christ buying us back, right? Him purchasing us with his blood, redemption. Um, but redeeming here doesn't really have a theological sense to it. We aren't redeeming something in the same way that Christ has redeemed us, but the sort of foundational principle is a metaphor of what's going on. So if the foundational principle is that we're purchasing something or we're buying out or buying back something, there's, there's the foundational principle. Let's move to time and then we'll tie them all together. So time um, is, it, it does mean like the TikTok kind of time, but it, but it doesn't always mean that. It can, it can mean like an opportunity uh, or like you, we might say, it's time. That's not saying like it's, you know, 1130. We're saying like it's something, a little bit something different, and more of an opportunity. It's the right moment for something. And I think that's where he's going with this idea. So it's, it's a critical moment that has arrived. A season of opportunity lies before us. And we are called to buy those moments out. So think perhaps as an illustration of someone with significant capital who takes the opportunity when the market crashes to buy up all of these properties, right? He did it at the right time. There was an, a season of opportunity, and so he bought it up. And that's what the last days generally is for us, and certainly, specifically, what the moment when God opens a door is. That's the right time. And we're called to buy them back, which is metaphorically saying, make full use of the present season of opportunities. Take the opportunities. Speak the mystery of Christ wisely at the right time, in the right way, to the right one. Now, how do we do that? How do we know when that is? Well, we walk in the fear of the Lord. And we know that the Spirit of God is going to guide us. He's the one, after all, that opens the doors. It's not that we necessarily see all the doors and we say, well, that one looks like it might be open. I'm going there. Like as we walk through life, he opens doors before us as we interact with those who might not know the truth of God. And so he's saying that, mirror the life of Paul. Church, walk with the mind of Christ until the end, having the skill to know what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. That would mean that we are then buying up these opportune moments like a real estate mogul,
because we have gospel capital. We know the truth. We are able to make the right move when the door opens because we are poised and ready to speak. We have abundant life and we can light the way toward Christ. With what means would we do this? How practically would we redeem the time? I think it's the third characteristic found in verse 6. With our words, with our speech, with a message, same very message that Paul adorned and loved. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. So speech is that, it's the familiar Greek word logos, which can mean a word, it can mean a message. I think he probably is, once again, a wide net saying, because he's already said every word that you speak, let it be spoken in the name of Christ. But I also think because of verses 2 through 6 as a category, he probably primarily is talking about our gospel conversation. Let the message of Christ be adorned with grace, be full of grace, that at every moment, every move, every turn, every even slip of the tongue, it's gracious. Now, why do you think that grace would be this found foundational characteristic? Well, why are we Grace Baptist Church? Because the gospel is grace. That's what it is at its heart. It is the generous gift of God to humanity and to Him for His glory. And so that like, like to say that I would speak the gospel without grace, it doesn't work. It's oil and water. Right? They don't blend to lack a gracious tongue. And yet how often, perhaps in our own lives, certainly in our observation, would you see a graceless gospel message? It's everywhere. Whether it's legal or whether it's loud, like in one's face, again, banging on closed doors, just screaming Christ in just a way that seems so uncharacteristic of Christ Himself. So full of grace, that's the center of the message, isn't it? That our gospel interactions would be full of this characteristic is more than implied. It's demanded here. And it goes, once again, hand in hand with the open door. So it's, again, yeah, it's difficult to yell with grace. Um, the, the next phrase, seasoned with salt, it's a little bit different than how Jesus would use it in Matthew, say like you're the salt of the earth. It's another salt metaphor. Um, and the idea here is that like as salt does to food, not just in its preservative effects, but in its, perhaps think more flavor, that salt is, uh, it's very winsome, isn't it? It's very attractive. It uh, brings out the good. It advances the flavor. It's better with salt than without, generally speaking, right? Get too much of it, maybe not so. If Caden pours it out, that's not, no, it's too much, right? But salty, meaning flavorful, appealing. I want some of that. I'll give you a plate with no seasoning, and I'll give you a plate with seasoning. Which one do you want? Which gospel presentation do you want to hear? Well, the flavorful one, the one that is joyful and thanksgiving, and true, and real, and I understand grace, and I've seen it. And Jesus is 
alive, and He's our Savior, and my life is hidden with Him, and, and He died for me, and, and this joyful proclamation of who Christ is and what He's done. This is the fruit of having tasted it ourselves. This is how Paul walked through life. That doesn't mean it's tentative or scared or, or just never willing to say a hard thing. In fact, the gospel is a very hard thing to hear. It's good news, but it tells you first that you're a sinner. That's difficult to hear. Can we do that with grace? Can we speak truth with love? That's what we're called to, is to maintain a hard word with kindness. The world is convinced that that's an impossibility, right? At this point, to disagree with someone means it's all over. But somehow, in the gospel of grace, we're called ultimately and constantly to be looking to bridge that gap, to be looking to go back to, to someone we disagree with, with a kind and difficult word of Christ. So it arouses perhaps this thirst for listening. Um, it's, it's winsome, maybe witty, it's, it's appealing. Finally, the last phrase is this purpose statement. He says, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So each of our interactions should be informed and attentive gospel answers. The purpose of this prayerful awareness, the purpose of pleading for an open door, the purpose of asking God for boldness and clarity, the purpose of this wise walk and, and buying back all of these opportunities and moments, this coiled readiness to spring into gospel action, all of it is this, that we would know how we ought to answer each one, that we would have before us the gospel grace-saturated answer that we are obliged to give every individual person. So a few notes on this. Paul is saying here um, that he is compelled and we are compelled. So once again, yes, he's speaking of apostolic authority, but then he includes us in this responsibility to say it. And this is the, the obligation word that we must, we're called to it. Okay, so we have to, we have to answer everyone. And then he says there's a particular way in which we should. That would be wisdom applied. Remember, the right word at the right time in the right way. So how do we practice this? How do we do this? And, and this each one is not just everyone. Uh, he's not saying the whole group, like that you know how to answer people, all the people. He's saying that you would know uniquely how to answer each different person. Well, that's kind of intimidating that there is, and there is, a word to be fitly spoken at the right time. Now, there's joy and comfort um, in the promise of the Holy Spirit being in us. It's quite helpful that as we walk with God, as we practice the fear of the Lord before Him, the Spirit of God is in us, even moving us, directing us, guiding us, guiding our tongue. He even, he even tells uh, the apostles and disciples at one point not to perhaps prepare what they're going to say when they're put before the tribunal. 
Because there's, if every different circumstance is one you have to prepare for, how do you prepare for everyone and every... We, there's, we know so very little about every person everywhere. But this call to know the gospel and to be ready. And the Spirit of God will guide us in truth and in wisdom. And it may surprise you how fitting the words that you have to say will be for that individual person. One maybe word of encouragement in order to assist this is to really have our ears open when we're conversing with people. That as you go towards someone with the gospel, if we have this premeditated A, B, C, D, here's what I have to say, here's where I'm going to go, here's what it's going to be, then sometimes our ears are just sort of closed off to what they have to say because we're ready with the word, because we're ready to say it. And part of a word fitly spoken is that it's impactful to that person in their life and having heard them would be a very compassionate thing, a thing that is attractive, a thing that is appealing, perhaps might even assist our gospel presentation being gracious. So hearing someone with their particular struggles, their needs, their you know, circumstance in life, even something as simple as, you know, and I'm not great at this, but something as simple as like remembering a name, that can go a long way sort of being like, oh, you care about me. You noticed, you heard, and now you have a word to say in response that's fitting. So there's, there's a lot probably that could go into that, but just know that it's a different answer perhaps for each one. But all our preparation is, is gospel-centered gospel orientation whereby we're ready and we're praying. God, open the door. God, make me ready. God, don't make me sleepy like the disciples. May I not sleep through these opportunities? May I not just wake up and, and I've been living in my own selfish world of ambition and then there's sitting in front of me as an open door and I'm wholeheartedly unprepared. I haven't been thinking about grace. I haven't been thinking about Christ. I put hindrances in my way. So all of these together, this whole text, he's Paul calling us to join him in his mission to clearly proclaim the mystery of Christ. Because we have new life with him, because we are the body of Christ to the world, we are compelled to pray for and to practice evangelism. So it's missional prayer and then missional participation. Is the final word of the book of Colossians. We'll um, accumulate it next week in his farewell address. Let's close in prayer.